Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 17 I've given her another round of antibiotics, said the doctor. It would be better if she didn't go on any more long walks. He had drawn Stuart and James out of Mary's room so their conversation would not wake the sleeping girl. I can think of a hundred things she ought not to do, said Stuart conversationally. One worries about blood poisoning, said the doctor. She needs time to heal. She has the ritual to move through and then she must transition into a healthy pregnancy. Perhaps not, said Stuart. Such things are not set in stone. He noted that the doctor and James both went white at what he was implying. While Stuart did not commune with the Dark Lord, as Mary said she had done from time to time, there was no greater student than Stuart of Achaean's past desires and behaviors. For almost twenty years Stuart had been called upon to rule in his stead and to prepare for the opening of the gate his mother had slammed shut by murdering his father and killing herself. Acheron will decide what to do with her when he returns to the world, he said. In the meantime, we will help her, as best we can, to understand and accept her position. And, as she embodies Our Lady, we will treat her with kindness and respect. Is that understood? Yes, said James. It is, replied the doctor. Stuart let himself back into the bedroom and moved to sit in the chair beside Mary's bed. In centuries past this would have been a time of revels for him as the anointed. Had things gone differently, Arthur would be alive and through him Acheron would be governing the society. Stuart would be a prince about to become king. Fornication, adventure, anything and everything would have been offered to him on a silver plate. Gifts in reward for his sacrifice and in the hope that he would remember the giver when Acheron resided within him. But here he sat with Mary standing guard over her and her celestial guest because they were Acheron's way into the world. His duty was to protect Acheron and the society from their greatest risk, a willful, young woman who refused to believe in magic. Hours after her walk on the beach, Mary awoke to find herself back in bed with an Ford raining into her arm. Stuart sat in an armchair at her side, reading a book. Please, let me go, she said. Why can't you do that? He closed his book, stood up and moved to sit beside her in the big bed. I wish I could, he said. I do understand the desire to make your own decisions and chart your own course in this world. It's what you were taught to expect. It is medieval to have your life laid out for you and all the important decisions made long before you were born. Stuart sounded sincere in his somber words. She had considered him her jailer, but perhaps he was a fellow prisoner. Do you want to escape too? she asked. Why can't we both run away? At fifteen, Catherine, the young princess of Aragon, born a daughter to a monarch who was queen in her own right, was betrothed to Arthur. He was eldest son of the first Tudor king of England. Catherine came from Spain with a tiny retinue, she married a sickly boy, and he subsequently died. Henry VII refused to send Catherine home because he had to keep her dowry and the Spanish alliance to protect his kingdom. Years later, when he died, Catherine married Arthur's younger brother, Henry VIII, said Stuart. Choice did not enter into many of their decisions. We are not Tudor royalty, she protested. As if he had not understood her, Stuart went on. Catherine had a daughter and suffered many miscarriages in search of a male heir, as Henry slept through many of her ladies in waiting. He eventually decided he wanted to marry the one noblewoman who refused to fornicate with him before marriage. Catherine spent the rest of her life a true prisoner. 
she died praying the madman she had married wouldn't murder his own daughter. We don't live in those times anymore, she said. Most people don't, he said. But you, I, and the society do. You and I can't run away. Acheron, this creature you think owns us, he's gone now. They can't bring him back without you and me. Do you want to subject yet another generation to this obscenity? Stuart eyed her for a long moment and said, Yes, I do. And for what it is worth, what you are asking is impossible. Exasperated, Mary turned away from him. This place was a prison. It was a gilded cage where the society kept its sacrificial victims. She tugged at the ivy connected to her arm, irritably. Call someone to get this needle out of me, she said. I am tired of everything happening without my consent. Sadly, you must be patient for an hour or two, said Stuart. I've been given good reason for you to have a second dose of antibiotics, and if you want to pretend to escape some more, you need to get rid of the infection you gave yourself with your sculpting tools. Having delivered his verdict, he turned to pick up the bedside phone. Mary listened to him order food and wine and when he returned the phone to its cradle she began again. What if you just remove this bracelet and let whatever is inside me go? Mary, I assure you that is not going to happen, said Stuart firmly. The only thing that can change in this situation is your attitude. I don't understand this at all, she said sharply. Why on earth are you doing this? You are grown men, world leaders, wealthy beyond belief. Because Acheron has counseled a thousand kings. He knew Alexander, Caesar, and Constantine as men. He is Prometheus the Lightbringer. We are not opening the way for a monster, as you seem determined to believe. We are accepting the help of a deity who has served mankind for many millennia, he said. Well, this is far more insanity than I bargained for, said Mary dismissively. You have to let me go. This is exactly what you bargained for, he said. Not only were you born and bred to play your part, you agreed to it in writing, then swore to it before witnesses. The deal is done. A moment later James entered the room with the food Stuart had requested. He looked more relaxed than he had on the previous day. Perhaps because he was less worried that she might send another thunderbolt through his chest. He placed the tray on the table beside Stuart then tipped the open bottle of wine into two glasses. How is Ahmed? Stuart asked him as he took one glass and offered the other to Mary. He's doing well, said James. Both his lungs were punctured, but he is on the mend. He will be here in seven days to perform his role in the ascension. Seven days, Mary thought. I have just seven days to escape. Four hours, Mary thought. I have just four hours to escape. What on earth was she going to do? She was seated alone on a long bench in the garden over the subterranean parking lot. The hot sun beat down from the sky and she could hear the roar of the surf from the sea below the cliffs on the other side of the abbey. Over the last few days she had wandered the house and grounds and, over time, Stuart had given up being her constant companion. She felt certain she had fooled him into believing she had become docile and completely resigned to her fate. Hours ago she had asked for tea on the terrace. James had brought it to her, sat nearby while she slowly sipped cup after cup, and a few moments ago he had carried the heavy tea tray away. Slowly, without looking around, she rose and walked down the steps to the long asphalt drive. She had purposely dressed in sandals and a flowing flowered dress rather than clothing in which she could easily run. She wanted everyone to believe she had given up her attempts at escape. But now, as she strolled along the drive toward the gate, 
Her heart was pounding with both excitement and fear. Would someone come after her? Would her strength fail her as Stuart had predicted? Walking out of this nightmare couldn't be easy, but it had to be possible. Sooner than she expected she found her way blocked by the large, black metal gate emblazoned with an S. With no way to open it, she walked into the woods along the attached fence. She saw tall, thick, metal rods were driven deep into the ground just a hand's breadth apart. She saw no way to get around them, no way to get through them, and no way to get over them. She had followed the long line of posts for a quarter of a mile only to discover it ended at the edge of a cliff. There was no way to get around the last post and out of the society's compound. More to the point, Stuart was leaning against the fence as if he had known all along that this was where she would come. She gave him a wide berth as she approached the precipice, then looked down to discover a sheer 200-foot fall to a water-filled cove. If she leapt past him and dropped into that nothingness, would she die? You would be shocked at how little of you needs to be working for the ritual to work, Stuart said. In any case, I am not going to let jump. He moved forward, and despite her initial reluctance, he took her arm. He led her back through the woods at a leisurely pace. On the drive, a few feet from the gate, she found an expensive red sports car waiting. Stuart walked to the driver's door, opened it, and gestured for her to get inside. Once she was installed, he shut the door and walked to the other door and let himself into the vehicle. Seven gears, he said as he picked up her hand. He placed it on the stick shift and said, now engage the clutch. When she did, he swiftly ran her through all the gears the car had to offer, naming them one by one. Leaving her in first gear, he said, now let up slowly on the clutch as you apply the gas. The car rolled forward, passing through the massive gate as it silently slid open. At his direction, she turned left onto the road that ran outside the compound. This car can go from 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds. Its top speed is 191 miles per hour, said Stuart. Why don't we see how far we can get? Unable to believe her ears, she jammed her foot on the gas pedal and began to drive as quickly as she could. She moved through the gears with Stuart's help, accepting his instruction on when to change up and down, and she took his advice on how fast to take the turns. Soon she was following signs that led to the A30. As they approached town, there was a sudden and unexpected delay caused by a man herding a hundred sheep across the road. Not long after they got past that, they ran into men picking up bricks that had fallen from the bed of a truck into the thoroughfare. So many had fallen it was impossible for her or any of the other two dozen waiting cars to drive over them. Driving on the shoulder to get past that, she drove only five more minutes before she encountered a large multi-car traffic accident. She saw men in white loading adults and children on stretchers into ambulances, police taking witness statements, and a body in an orange bag being loaded into a long black vehicle. Stuart said, Well, that's enough fun. Please take the next left turn. Why? she asked. She was looking past the accident at what seemed to be very light traffic on the coastal road. There were signs pointing toward Plymouth and London dead ahead. She wouldn't give up her only chance of escape merely on Stuart's say-so. Ignoring the police officers who instructed her to stay in line and wait her turn to pass, she crossed to the wrong side of the road, narrowly avoided hitting an ambulance worker, raced toward the next high street intersection. Someone died in that accident, said Stuart. If we go too much further, things will start happening to the vehicle we are in, and it is one I rather like. So turn left up ahead. We'll get lunch at the pub. Then we'll head back to do our duty.
You really believe magic caused that accident? She demanded. Speeding past the turn he recommended she said, that's ridiculous. Even as she said the words, the vehicle they were traveling in was slammed hard on the right side by a tow truck seeking to make a U-turn across multiple lanes of traffic. Stuart was on the phone before the car they were in had skidded to a stop. We're about 500 feet from Branson's pub, he said conversationally. Please send someone out to deal with the police and what remains of the car. Stuart stepped out of the wreck then held his hand out for Mary to take. Mary, head spinning, tried to open her own door only to realize it was crushed and its airbag had deployed. With no other option, she allowed Stuart to help her wriggle out of the car on his side. Once out, she looked for someone she could ask for help. The police officers and ambulance were far away, and the driver of the truck had his back to the expensive car he had destroyed and the people he had almost killed. He was yelling into his phone. Stuart escorted Mary down the road toward an old pub. It was just a couple of hundreds yards away and it overlooked the water. Do you recall hearing about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in school? Stuart asked. I am told those nuns gave you a first-rate education. Still dazed by the speed, power, and timing of the impact, Mary said, it's something about atoms. Something about electrons. It's impossible to predict where in an electron's orbit it will be found. There's a reason for that. Electrons don't have to stay in this universe. They pass between dimensions. Have you heard about quantum entanglement? What kind of entanglement? asked Mary. It is possible to entangle two particles such that a change in one will immediately change the other no matter how far apart they are. Whether it's miles, or light years, or in another dimension, said Stuart. Something that happens very far away can have an effect here. He seemed completely at ease despite the fact both of them might have died just moments ago. Could he have manufactured this series of events? Could it all have been staged? Her mind reeled at the thought. Now. Have you heard that light behaves as both a particle and a wave? When observed, light passing through a slot behaves like a particle. When no one is looking, it behaves like a wave, appearing to pass through the slot multiple times. Now let's talk about Schrodinger's cat. Why on earth are you talking about any of this? She demanded. We live in a universe connected at the subatomic level with other universes including the one in which Acheron and Our Lady normally reside. Acheron may not be able to directly enter this world without coming through me, but he can directly impact it by manipulating the energies in it. By this point they had come to the door to the pub. Stuart opened it and together they stepped inside its warmth and silence. Kate saw that the decor was predictably ship-like, with portals, shells, and starfish competing with brass and wood bar in the nautical blue carpet. Without waiting to be seated, Stuart led her to a table near the window that overlooked the late afternoon sea. They were the only two people in the place. Welcome, sir, said the rotund barkeep. It's been many a year since we had a trelevan here. How are the and thine on this fine day? Very well, said Stuart affably. We'll just have water to drink and whatever you recommend that we eat. We are in a bit of a rush. We've quite a plowman's lunch, offered the man. That would be ideal said Stuart. He reached into his pocket for his wallet and the man waved him off. Now we'll have none of that. You know your money is no good here. Thank you, Tom. Please give my best to your father and brother. It's been too long since I've seen them, said Stuart. Every Friday like clockwork, the man replied with a smile. You can find them here with the darts and the drink. 
they know you here, she said when the man moved away. Of course, he said. Our families have been neighbors for a very long time. So you claim, she said without much conviction. You're a strange creature, he said. I don't even know who you are lying to at this point. Tom returned to place water, bread, cheese, sausage and scotch eggs on the table. Please call the police, she said to the man hopefully. The barkeep looked at Stuart who said wryly, please don't. The man nodded at Stuart, and without looking at Mary again he moved away. You aren't in any position to judge anyone, she said. You have done nothing but lie to me since the first day we met. If you say so, he said. Stuart then took an active interest in eating, apparently happy to leave her to think whatever she wished. Belatedly she decided she should consume some kind of nourishment since she had no idea what lay ahead. Stuart finished then watched her eat patiently. When she was through, he slid both plates aside. He rested his folded arms on the table and looked into her eyes. I have given some thought to trying to prepare you for the evening's activities. I was going to tell you what to expect. Now, however, I see you will just have to make your own way through the experience. And frankly I have no idea what will happen to you once it's over. She kept her face immobile, determined not to give him the satisfaction of knowing he was frightening her. Once the Dark Lord is incarnate, I'll have no influence over his acts, no more control over him than you have over Our Lady. So I don't know if you'll survive the night. You are threatening me, she said. Half an hour ago a tow truck tried to kill you, he replied. Your heart is hardened against Acheron, against me, against the society. You are not a child and you won't be treated like one. You'll willingly honor your commitments or die. It is as simple as that. Here Stuart paused as if his next words were very hard for him to say. If I could release you from your role in the society's service to Acheron, even at the price of my own life, I swear I would. I cannot. Neither of us will be permitted to walk away. There is no way for me to protect you more than I have. Whether you live or die is entirely in your own hands. I hope you see that before it is too late. By the time he had finished speaking, Mary was looking past him. James and a somewhat pale Ahmed had entered and were waiting at the end of the bar. Driven back to the abbey in a black Rolls Royce, she sat silent beside Stuart. She wondered if his words could possibly be true. Was he too a prisoner here? Allowed to command but not to escape? She couldn't believe that was true. Once in the underground parking lot, James and Ahmed let them both out of the car. Stuart followed her up the short flight of stairs into the house, then led her up the long flight of stairs to her bedroom. He sat her in the armchair near the fire, poured her a glass of water, and said, Stay here until they come for you. Do whatever you are told. Where are you going? She asked. You will see me again very soon, he said. If you simply do what you are told we will both be alive tomorrow. No one here wants to see you hurt. He said something else then, the words slipping past her like living things. Pure joy rushed through her. What did you say? She asked. I told Our Lady I will miss her greatly when she leaves us, but soon she will be free. Ahmed and James were already dressed in their robes, and their hair was wet, when they came for her. They were somber as if they were on their way to a funeral or an execution. Shall we drug you? Ahmed asked in something like a courteous way. Or will you simply condescend to do what we say? Remembering Stuart's words, Mary rose and allowed them to lead her to the bathing room. She could smell the steaming aromatic water as she entered. Undress, 
said Ahmed. Her shaking hands moved to unfasten her clothes almost of their own accord. She wanted this whole experience to be over. Whatever it took to make that happen she would do. Maybe she should accept their offer to sedate her. Would that make it all easier? But she couldn't bear the thought of not knowing what had happened to her when it was all over. When she was naked, standing like a statue before them, neither man looked at her. Please step into the water, said James. Once again, she complied, submerging herself completely. When she held out her hand for a towel, one was thrust into her hands. Without waiting for instruction, she walked out of the bath and let them quickly towel her dry. A moment later, to her surprise, Ahmed knelt at her feet. He poured thick oil from a brown bottle into his hands, then applied it to her legs. In a matter of minutes, with help from James, she was covered in a scent that was overwhelmingly familiar. It carried a poignant memory of open fields and wooded places. Their hands swept over her breasts, slipped between her thighs, crossed her face. It was all done swiftly, silently, professionally. Then they stepped away. Let's go, said Ahmed. Mary thought he sounded weary and sad. The men led her out of the room, down the hall, and once again the thick, iron-studded door was opened, a gaping maw into which she must descend. Ahmed and James threw their hoods forward. James scooped her into his arms. The men navigated the staircase quickly, moved through the invisible gates with assurance. They entered the underground cathedral. This time a single hanging censer was positioned over the slab. Seeing it reminded her of the last time she had lain there, the monster she had seen. As a child she had not been afraid of Acheron, as a woman she found him terrifying. James laid her back against the cold stone. She felt Ahmed clamp something over her ankle, heard the rattle of chains as she stirred. Seconds later she was chained to the slab by both her hands and feet. I don't want to do this, she managed to say as Ahmed moved close. Please just let me go. Hush, he answered softly. She could make out his face under the hood and their eyes met. James took up the arm that still wore the gold bracelet. He opened her hand to expose the palm. Ahmed blocked her view of the hand and a moment later steel bit deep into her flesh. She gasped. For what seemed like forever they held her hand still as she tried to pull it away. Eventually Ahmed slid something soft and round into her hand, and closed her fingers over it to make a fist. As they moved away she saw they carried a golden goblet filled to the brim with her blood. The softness in her hand was a thick roll of white gauze. The echo of a large bell filled the chamber. Mary watched robed figures enter the sanctuary carrying torches. Between the two rows of five men she saw Stuart. He was naked, firelight flickering across his broad chest, painting his muscular thighs and long legs with light and shadow. The men formed a circle before the altar, planting their tall torches and silver-rimmed holes in the floor. Ahmed, James and Stuart stood on the steps with their backs to her. Ahmed gave Stuart the goblet. He drank from it then handed it to James who followed suit. The goblet passed around the circle, from man to man. Ahmed took the last draft, then turned to place the goblet on the step beneath the altar. Stuart stepped to the middle of the circle, James and Ahmed reached under the altar and when she saw what they held in her hands she gasped. They stepped down off the altar and, acting in unison, plunged the twin blades deep into his back, dragged them down through muscle and skin to his buttocks. Back to her, Stuart struggled to stand as his blood ran in rivers down his back and legs to pool on the floor under his feet. He dropped to his knees and turned his head so he could see her. 
she could almost hear him saying, we all have our more unpleasant duties to perform. The blood sliding down his back began to blacken. The wounds in his back began to stretch horrifically. As she watched, bones unfurled like insect legs from inside him. Skin stretched from his back along the bony spines, swiftly forming dark leathery wings. The creature, no longer Stuart, rose and turned. She was staring into a beautiful, terrifying, face she had made with her own hands not so long ago. Acheron was a childhood dream turned into a living nightmare. In a single bound the demon was on the altar over her, wings stretched wide to shroud them. She turned her head, trying to arc her body away from him. She felt his teeth sink into her exposed throat. In that instant her body caught fire and she saw all Our Lady saw. Acheron had been drawn into the body the goddess had made thirty years ago. She obligingly made the two into one. Her brother could now walk between worlds as he and his mortal minions desired. His purpose served, Acheron jerked the trap that tied his sister to this world from Mary's arm. It fell to the marble floor and shattered like glass. The goddess, free at last, surged up and away, leaping with joy through solid rock into a starry sky. Acheron followed his sister's motion as far as he could, rising with a single wing beat into the flickering light that filled the sanctuary. Then he gracefully felt to sit on his throne which had been hidden in the darkness on the far side of the vast underground cathedral. At a wave of Acheron's hands, fire sprang from all the censers in the room. In the now brilliantly lit chamber, Mary saw all the characters in her tarot cards and all the faces that had ever sprung from her hands. They were all alive in this place. They shifted on the tile floor, crawled up the columns, stared down from golden relief from the ceiling. Where the Acheron sat, stone cherubs cavorted above him and gargoyles writhed below. This temple resonated with the immortals alive in another plane. Feeling the blood that coated her body, that still ebbed from the wounds on her neck, Mary wondered if she was hallucinating. Could this be real? How could stone come alive? She watched Acheron's human servants kneel before him one by one. He inclined his head to listen to them, then he would speak, then they would rise and back away. At last Mary and the deity were alone. Acheron left his throne and strode to her. He examined her, seeking defects, then he moved forward to touch a point between her breasts. Her heart stopped. An instant became an eternity as her body cried out for oxygen. Would this be the last thing she ever saw? This dark shrine and this fallen angel who demanded so much from his servants. As the ache in her chest became agony and she felt numbness crawling up her limbs, he spoke in inhuman harmonies. It was this that made her believe he was an angel. He had such a beautiful voice. You will no more betray me. Chapter 21 When Mary woke up, she was being carried through the darkness. As she passed through the massive door at the end of the upper hall, she saw she was in Stuart's arms and she let her head rest against his chest. He carried her past her bedroom and opened the door next to it along the hall. She found herself in a dark paneled bedroom, one much larger than the one she had been in before, with an ornate gold bed that was truly fit for a king. He lay her on the bed and then disappeared, only to return seconds later with Ahmed and James. Silent, Stuart lifted her again. They threw back the blankets to expose the sheets, placed warm towels on the bed, then Stuart lay her on them. Together Ahmed and James gently examined and washed her body, carefully exploring the seeping wounds at her neck. Applying ointments and bandages carefully, they avoided meeting her eyes. Finally they put a pillow under her head and covered her with the heavy blankets. What's to become of her now? 
James asked. She's alive for the time being, said Stuart, sounding tired. Perhaps he will allow her to serve her purpose. Time will tell. The wounds are far deeper and more savage than described in the texts, said Ahmed as he returned Gaza, salves, and alcohol to his bag. She could use some stitches and a little plastic surgery if we want to avoid a scar. That won't be necessary. He intends it as a memento, said Stuart. Get to bed. We have much to do in the morning. Without a word to Mary, the two men obediently left the room. Stuart locked the door behind them, then went into the bathroom. Mary heard the shower run and struggled to sit up. Shaking, she went into the bathroom and sank to the floor. She watched Stuart wash through the clear glass of the perfectly square shower stall. She saw his back now featured long, angry red scars that ran from shoulder to buttock. Stuart stepped out of the shower and toweled himself dry. Pulling on white pajama bottoms he looked down at her. Believe in magic yet? He asked her. He knelt down and raised her up, then he pulled her into his arms and held her close as he stroked her hair. She melted into him, unable to believe he wasn't dead. She had seen the long knives plunge deep into him and the blood pour out of him. She had seen him become something else. Everything he had ever said to her, every single word, had been true. He had remained at her side, had worked hard to protect her, though she had fought him every step of the way. And all the while the sacrifice demanded of him had dwarfed what Acheron demanded of her. The deity, the demon, who now chaired his body could wrench him out of it at will. From this day forward Stuart would be merely a guest in a body he used to own. Was there a more brutal and complete form of slavery? Stuart's gentle hand tilted her head back and his lips came to hers. The hundred times he had visited her in dreams had been a prelude to this moment, this surrender. He lifted her up, carried her back to the bed, where he made love to her until she cried out. As ecstasy took them both, she felt the echo of the goddess and her leap into eternity. I make souls flesh, she found herself thinking. I can weave spirits into body and bone. You fear me less and fear me more when I wear my servant's face, Acheron said in the language of angels. Stuart's face was grotesquely stretched to express Acheron's satisfaction and conquest however the eyes in his head belonged to Acheron alone. At some point during their lovemaking, he had slid into his servant and Mary could not have said when. Mary shook her head in mute denial. How could she not fear the terrifying creature she had once called her orphaned friend? He was immortal and he commanded forces she could hardly imagine. He had bred her for this terrible purpose, stalked her since childhood, and had used women like her generation after generation to bring himself into the world. He had proven himself to be a monster in every sense of the word. But there was nothing this demon could ask her to do now that she would not surrender to in a heartbeat. Now she understood, in disobedience she would only find death. Acheron would simply kill her and find another woman to carry the next generation he needed to remain in the world. Only in submission she could remain close to Stuart, bound to him. She must survive or he would be completely alone in his subjugation. She would survive, she vowed as she stared up into Acheron's golden eyes, so she could find a way to free them both from the demon king. The End
Voice recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.